Let's go to God in prayer. God of grace and love, we give you thanks for your son, for your word who sets us free in this and every age. Oh God, help us to find our identity rooted and grounded in the love of your son. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. We are, my fellow red-dressed Lutherans and guests, in the middle of a 13-year period of 500th anniversaries. This started in 2017 when we celebrated the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. We'll likely continue to remember a series of 500th anniversaries until 2030, which will feature the 500th anniversary of the Augsburg Confession, the document that for all intents and purposes defines what the Lutheran faith looks like. Now in 2022, we're celebrating another important anniversary moment, the publishing of Luther's translation of the New Testament into German, a document which both brought the gospel to life in new ways for people who had never read it for themselves and went on to serve as a unifying force for the German language. An approximation for us in the English-speaking world would be something like the King James Version of the Bible. Up until this point, only the educated and clergy could read scripture. Now, the story of how this translation came to be almost reads like the script of a thriller. In 1521, Luther defended his faith at the Diet of Worms, which is not a fad diet. It's a governmental meeting of the Holy Roman Empire. So standing before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, a man who, at the height of his power and influence, controlled nearly two-thirds of Europe, Luther supposedly thundered that famous saying, My conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. Now this didn't go exactly well for Luther. Though he did gain something like a medieval rock star status, what he failed to gain was an official recognition of the faith of the Reformation. And though promised safe passage on his way home, Luther was kidnapped. Kidnapped and hidden specifically by his benefactor, a German elector, Prince Frederick the Wise. Luther was whisked away and hidden at the Wartburg Castle taking on disguise, entering into his own two-year quarantine period, growing out his beard, as we all did, and calling himself Junker or Knight George. In the safety of this mountain fortress, which inspired our Lutheran anthem, A Mighty Fortress, Luther had two years to complete his translation of the New Testament, which was published in September of 1522. Now, Luther translated the New Testament for the same reason he nailed those 95 theses to that church door. He was convicted that people were in desperate need to hear the good news of the gospel. That without having the word of God in their own hands, they were subject to scriptural manipulation and control. That that if clergy weren't held accountable by people who had the scriptures in their hands, the temptation to abuse their status and influence 
would always lie close at hand. You see, as there is in nearly every age, in Luther's context of the late Middle Ages, there was a fundamental spiritual identity crisis. Most people lived in great fear of hell, taught that unless they played by the church's rules, did enough good works, that eternal life would be closed off to them. Luther called this faulty way of thinking works righteousness. Basically, you had to work or earn your way into God's grace and favor. And so as a result, most people lived in this state of great anxiety, of terrified conscience, and greatly afraid of God. To these people, Luther wrote, as he was translating the New Testament, a document to be attached to it. It's called A Brief Instruction on What to Look for and Expect in the Gospels. A Brief Instruction of What to Look for and Expect in the Gospels. In that document, he writes this. The chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, you accept and recognize him as a gift. I'm going to say that again with some gloss because it's important. Before you take Christ as an example for your life and for your actions, you must first accept and recognize him as a gift. Faith has to come before action. He continues, you must recognize Christ as a gift, as a present that God has given you, and that is truly your own. Do not doubt that Christ himself, with all of his deeds and suffering, belongs to you. Christ belongs to you. This is what it means to have a proper grasp of the gospel, that is, of the overwhelming goodness of God. This is the great fire of the love of God for us, whereby our hearts and our consciences become happy and secure and content. Luther's theology, the the theology of the Reformation, was designed to be pastoral, to bring the good news of God's love and grace, the gospel, to people suffering from this anxious identity crisis. Now, this matters just as much for us 500 years later because we, too, live in a moment in history marked, at the very least, by two broad interweaving identity crises. I'll explain. The first identity crisis that we struggle with comes from the promise of modernity, the promise that there is no limit to human progress, no limit to human progress. The intellectual movement of the Enlightenment and the technological movement of the Industrial Revelation taught us that human beings, through their reason, with enough time and enough hard work, can make sense of all of the mysteries of the universe, and that through knowledge we can develop ever greater technological solutions to master the earth. The identity crisis part comes in from this scientific and technical viewpoint, which, for the most part, teaches us implicitly to treat creation and to treat other people as things, as instruments that we use for our own enterprise of personal expansion. 
And yes, we have expanded, and there's no doubt great benefit to the many technological advances that we have. I like my indoor plumbing and my air conditioning and my car just as much as the next person. But the fallout is that many of us feel that we live in a world devoid of meaningful connection. Not to mention that we're kind of slowly destroying the earth along the way. We can recognize that we're in this identity crisis, this spiritual identity crisis, when we feel that gnawing compulsion welling up in our chest to do more and more, to stuff our lives to the brim with activity after activity, only to feel at the end of our days empty and burn out, to have our children develop a profound apathy and to have all of our most important relationships break down in the midst of our great abundance of things. The second identity crisis I want to mention follows from the jadedness of the first. You see, when the promise of modernity fails, it results in this great disillusionment of truth, of a postmodern shaking of what the foundations of truth even means, right? Truth becomes relative. We talk about disinformation, and things seem to change from moment to moment. You might have experienced something like this. Now, amid all of this uncertainty, we begin to suffer a loss of faith or trust in those usual sources of authority that we could trust beforehand, that showed us who we are and helped us form our identities in the first place. We know we're lost in this crisis when our lives are marked by a profound social anxiety of a deep, cynical mistrust of others at baseline. Our lives become marked by an apathetic retreat from the world, throwing up our hands and say, well, nothing I can do is going to make a difference anyways. This is the age we're living in, the age of post-truth, of disinformation, of fake news. You can't trust anything or anyone anymore. Now, as faithful readers of Scripture, we shouldn't be surprised by these crises of identity. You see, from the origins of the first humans, we have nearly always been in some form of spiritual identity crisis. When we take our eyes off of our dependence and trust of God, when we allow other forces to step in and guide and control us, whether they be that serpent in the garden in those first days or whether they be those, ad those advertisements living inside the tiny machines in your pockets right now. When we let those things step in, they can begin to convince us that we are like God, that we're in control of our own destinies, that we are self-sufficient and all-knowing and, Lord knows, always right. That there is just one more thing that we can do one more thing that we can buy that will make us happy. And when we get caught up in all of those things, we tend to forget that our identity is grounded and rooted and dependent upon the grace of God. Certainly this fundamental identity crisis pops up in our gospel reading for the day as Jesus speaks to these newly minted Jewish believers about how the truth can set them free, they, well, they protest, completely misunderstanding not only their own heritage, but even their current political situation. 
they pipe up. We've never been slaves to anyone. Really? What about those 400 years in Egypt? Or what about the exile in Babylon? What about the current ongoing Roman occupation of Judea that sort of sets the backdrop for all of the Gospels? And so Jesus goes on to challenge them. You, you claim that you're descendants of Abraham, the one who risked it all to follow God's call, the, the father of the life of faith, and yet you're trying to kill me because there's, well, there's just no space in you for my word. As it turns out, you can't really claim Abraham if you don't model that deep trust that took risks, that deep hospitality that welcomed God. Yet even still, the good news of the gospel for us this Reformation Sunday is that Christ continually offers that promise of true freedom to us. Freedom from all of those identity crises that we twist ourselves into, whether it be first century Judea, or 16th century Germany, or 21st century America. Let's look back at what Jesus says to his, uh, to his audience. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. A few verses later, there's a parallel statement that Jesus makes. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. To continue in Christ's word isn't necessarily to follow those literal words of Jesus that we find on the page. In fact, those came decades later. It's to follow the teachings of Christ, the, the logic or the pattern of Jesus. It's to ground our faith in the person of Christ and to order our actions through the witness of Jesus. To love, to love like the cross, to endure like the resurrection, to await the newness of Pentecost. But before we act, before we do any of those things, we've got to rest, to rest in the truth of who Jesus is. You see, both the Greek words in our passage today, the, the words for word and the word for truth, bear deeper connotation than to mere words on a page or mere factual truth statements. To know the words, to know the truth, is to have a deeper understanding of the core and the center of the foundations of existence and reality. It's to know who Jesus is. To continue in Christ's word means to find our identity in Christ, to recognize the only thing that can free us from all of those anxieties and pressures and uncertainties that bombard us is Jesus. We can't free ourselves. We can't do it alone. We can't earn our way into heaven. I'm going to make up a verb here. We can't even activity ourselves or our children into the happy, good life that God designs us for. These things can only come from finding our rest in the overwhelming love that God has for each and for every one of you, for all of us together. 
You see, only when we rest in the real truth behind creation, the truth that God loves us, the truth that God created us for relationship, can we begin to be free from the uncertainty of all of those competing identity claims and crises in our culture. And so on each Reformation Sunday, we continue to acknowledge the truth of the ongoing call of reformation. As long as we are alive, we are going to be caught up in all those social pressures and anxieties and uncertainties. I wish there was a way to tell you you could get away, but you can't. It's just going to happen. And as humans, we are going to, to use Paul's language in our second reading, we are going to sin and fall short of the glory of God every day. We will always be in need of reformation. We will always be in need of reformation. The truth will make us free. But that isn't always an easy process. And it never is a quick process either. It's one that unfolds across the entirety of our lives, that opens and expands into eternity with God. To have the truth make you free means to see yourselves, to see ourselves, with clarity as sinners in desperate, desperate need of God's grace. But thanks be to God, it also means seeing God with clarity. Seeing God with clarity through the lens of Jesus Christ. That yes, we are broken by sin, but also, more importantly, more fundamentally, that we are beloved by God and saved by Christ nonetheless. Without the work of this Reformation Day, the work of Luther and many others who put that word in our hands, we may have never come to see ourselves with this clarity. That's why we recognize this day on the last Sunday of October every year. And so it's my prayer for you, siblings in Christ, that this Reformation Sunday, that you would go out of this place resting in the truth of Jesus' word, of God's pattern and order of love that creates and redeems and sustains you and all creation. It's my prayer that when you walk out of this place and you face those spiritual anxieties that we swim in in our culture, that you might find your identity in God and that you might let God reform you with Christ's love in this and each and every moment. Thanks be to God. Amen.